The Bob Murphy Show, episode 309. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show today i'm going to be speaking with my friend gene callahan whom i met way back in grad school days uh, when I went to NYU. So that was from 98 to 03. Uh, Gene over the years has been a, he at one point was a staunch Austro-Libertarian anarcho-capitalist and then drifted away. And now he's, he's just Gene. He's, he's, you can't put him in a box. Let me read a little bit from, uh, so he teaches at NYU right now. And I, I found an interesting bio when he was first hired over there um at the Tandon School of Engineering. So this is this is a press release from August 2017 when he was first joining the faculty. But this was kind of interesting, some of the things they have in here. So let me just read from this and then I'll tee up the actual conversation we're going to have and jump right in. A conversation with industry associate professor Eugene Callahan can touch upon such wide-ranging topics as the filming of the Lord of the Rings franchise to personal finance to the importance of making sure no student gets lost in a barrage of rapid-fire technical information. Callahan, who holds degrees from the London School of Economics and Political Science and from Cardiff University, is an expert in agent-based modeling, a method of simulation in which autonomous entities called agents make decisions individually rather than collectively on the basis of a set of rules. And they have in parentheses, hence the Lord of the Rings discussion, since the computer-generated figures in the battle scenes were modeled in that manner, resulting in realistically chaotic action. The matter of personal finance arose because prior to his return to academia, Callahan, who was also taught at SUNY Purchase and St. Joseph's College, worked as a software developer for more than two decades and was a creator of Managing Your Money, one of the first commercially available personal finance programs, which hitched which hit the market well before the now ubiquitous Quicken. As a member of the Department of Computer Science and Engineering, Callahan will be teaching a graduate course in algorithms and an undergraduate offering in discrete mathematics. The author of the 2002 volume Economics for Real People, which I'm telling you folks, the Mises Institute published, it's introducing Austrian economics to the layperson and saying, hey, you know, this is, this is real world economics. It's not uh, abstract models that don't have any basis in reality. He excels at explaining complex technical topics to a lay audience. I believe strongly that no student should be left behind during a class, so I make every effort to convey information clearly and concisely, he says. I'm going to disagree with Gene on that one. The advice given to me when I went to Hillsdale, uh, one, you know, so I hadn't taught at that point when I first got there, and a professor told me, what did he say? He said, teach to the top third of the class. I think that's what he said. Because in other words, if you keep trying to make sure the material caters to the worst kids in the class, then it, every, everyone's going to be miserable because the worst students, a lot of it is their attitude, and so they don't really care, and then everybody else is going to be bored to tears. So in any event, I think we should leave some people behind. Having said that, the topic for today is Gene's going to be talking about um, the 
inner contradictions in classical liberalism's alleged neutrality. And so this ties into some of the things I, I have been doing recently on the podcast. You may recall the, the episode on the satanic temple. And so that was a topic. I was actually relying on some of the conversations I'd had with Gene years earlier where I had come around to his point of view on this stuff. We're both against Satan, by the way. So that's the, the premise. And so I said, hey, why don't you come on the show and we'll talk about all this. We also, at the end, get into artificial intelligence. And that's probably why I read this long bio, which so you would know Gene's quite accomplished professionally uh, when it comes to computers. So with all that, here we go. My conversation with Gene Callahan. Gene, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob. I have a... Uh... A uh, little surprise for you. Okay. I'm uh, teaching you a lesson. The lesson is don't make fun of my shirt, Bob, because now it's going to be on your entire podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, well, so, I'm just glad you didn't take off the other shirt. Well, what? that would have really taught you a lesson. But um, uh, yeah, this was the shirt I had on in my lecture in Budapest that you enjoyed so much. And I said, I'm going to get back at Bob. I'm going to wear it for this whole podcast. All right. That's, in any case, yeah. now that and we've a, got If that you out. ever uh, land a probe on a comet, you should also wear that shirt. I'm sure the public <laughs> would appreciate it. Okay. Very good. <laughs> okay. Well, so we had a few. I, I'm fun married. Topics. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lay a probe. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> a few fun topics for the folks. Uh, but what I want to start out with is this notion of liberal neutrality. I know you've got an article, for example, at ISI on this, but in general, I, I just remember even back when I think I was still at NYU and, you know, we were in proximity that you had had this notion that there was a, uh, I don't know if a flaw or an internal contradiction. Well, I'll let you explain it, but that you knew there was something wrong with classical liberalism. And at the, t and I resisted that for a while. And then when more recent, times i've come to realize that yes gene callahan gosh darn it he was onto something there and in fact in a recent episode of this podcast where i talked about you know the satanic statue being put up on the government property and such uh, and I, I think that just you know illustrated it but in any event i'll stop there and so you want to just take over and explain your views on this notion of a so-called liberal neutra neutrality and tolerance yeah so uh, let's say, um, uh, there's someone from, uh, some African ethnic group who, uh, wants to have a female circumcision on, with their daughter, right? Just, I'm just coming up with an example. Um, and, uh, this is going to be banned in a lot of liberal societies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, Something that uh, they might feel the state should stay out of, the state definitely uh, comes into. Um, on the other hand, if their daughter uh, uh, wants to become a boy, uh, uh, Bob, I just, uh, I don't see you anymore. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. I Okay. I, I put the spotlight on you. Oh, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> These podcast things are new to me. So you have to excuse me. Um, this is going to be, know, I'm not actually there in the room with you. <laughs> I'm far away. This is going to be on that thing. They call the internet. Yes. This, as long wow. as the tubes don't get clogged. 
Wow, that's something that's something else. Um so um but for instance, um if um someone um a teacher wants to uh tell their daughter homosexuality is uh just as good as heterosexuality, the African family might feel well this is terrible. The state should step in and stop them from uh telling my daughter this. Um, but, uh, the liberal state says, no, no, we have to be neutral between, uh, these different lifestyles, but it's, but in fact, what it means is there are certain lifestyles that, uh, the people who generally run our liberal democracies, in fact, like and approve of, and there's others that they don't, right? So if a family didn't want to let their 13 year old take puberty blockers in many places. Now the state is going to step in and, you know, perhaps, you know, say that this is child abuse. So it's the state is not neutral about whether parents allow their child to take puberty blockers or not. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something many people feel the state ought to stay out of. Other people might feel that the state ought to ban it. Right. But there's no neutral way to decide an issue like this, you have to, um, uh, you know, the state is going to have a position on these things. And any particular set of law is going to favor certain choices people make and frown upon others. Obviously, there's, you know, clear examples like we prevent uh, robbery um, and murder, but uh, the state isn't neutral if a communist feels that private property is theft and therefore um, I should be able to hold a party on your lawn because you really, you're, you calling it your lawn is actually theft. The state's certainly not neutral about that point of view. So there's the basic idea. Right. And it's even um, to try to make them more directly analogous, like you were saying, that if if the teacher wants to say uh, homosexuality is, is wrong. And then the state says, no, you're not allowed to say that. Um, or, or sorry, the other way, you said the other way around, right? If the teacher wants to say sexuality is fine and a particular family objects to that, the stance will be, Oh no, 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 we got to allow for diversity of opinion. That's a thing. But if the teacher wants to say, you know, Adolf Hitler was misunderstood and a bunch of families object to that, probably that's not going to be upheld, at least in the current United States, as just, oh, yeah, that's, you know, people should be able to say what they want. Right. But And even even the teacher who says, uh, um, you know, homosexuality is uh, every bit uh, equal to heterosexuality, there's no basis on choosing between them, will be fine. But a teacher who says, well, a homosexuality is not natural. It doesn't propagate the human race. Is going to get censored and told to stop being hateful, right? On a side note, I'm hearing when you speak like a a drumming noise or something. Are you like tapping your foot, or can you have any idea what's causing that? No. Uh, okay, I'll be very still. Do you hear it now? <laughs> I mean, I haven't yet. Okay, you know if it's maybe I was doing something. I mean, you're just getting into it. I know you're a very rhythmic guy, and and, you know, (laughs) I get nervous. By the way, Bob, I did want to point this out. Uh, Although this is a virtual background, Mm -hmm. 
it is a virtual background of my actual library. Um, it's not, I'm not one of those people who would put up someone else's library in an attempt to appear smarter than I am. I would always use my own library in an attempt to appear smarter than I am. All right. I feel that's a more authentic way of being phony. It's sort of like when the cops frame a guilty man. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, which, by the way, folks, that's not an oxymoron or a, a, a mere joke. That it's uh, That's what Alan Dershowitz claimed the police did in the case of O.J. Simpson, just <laughs> uh, among other things. Okay, so if we could just expand on that. So uh, let me play devil's advocate then. Couldn't somebody say, okay, but Gene, even a minute ago, you kind of gave away the game when you said, no, of course, you know, murder and theft, and then you try to just argue on the margins. So isn't there sort of a bright line distinction between things that, like, are you arguing, in other words, that the notion of liberal neutrality or, or tolerance is completely contradictory and just a, you know, just a, a self-defeating goal? Or are you just saying... Oh yeah, mistakes have been made, and but if the right people were in charge, we could strike that balance a lot better. Well, uh, I think that any regime, uh, and you know, this is going to apply to an ANCAP legal system just as well as a state legal system. I think. Um, so, um, is uh, IP a fundamental property right? Intellectual property of copyright patents are these fundamental property rights that have to be protected by the ANCAP courts or is this in fact a, a fraud and there's no reason to have intellectual property. Um, these decisions have to be made and, uh, you know, they're not, the, the state is going to, the legal system, so let's not assume statism, the legal system is going to come down on one side or the other, right? Um, uh, I pointed out in the article you mentioned, which I haven't looked at in a while, by the way. Um, uh, so I'm going from, you know, I wrote it a year ago or something. So I'm, I'm thinking back on it. Um, uh, you know, you may have um, a Sharia law system. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly. I've only seen that word written, I think. Yeah, I say law. That's how I say it. Law, Yeah. Well, sometimes I say lore if I want to pretend I'm from Boston. But um, so uh, we have a Sharia law system. And uh, that system um, uh, may be completely neutral about, uh, I, I had an example of, um, uh, you know, do, uh, maybe you don't have to send your kid to school if you don't want to. Uh, there's no uh, mandatory education. So that state is neutral about that, but not neutral about whether women can come out in public without a head covering, right? And uh, liberals will think, well, that's horrific. You know, that's obviously a violation of their rights. But of course, the liberal democracies force kids to uh, go to school. There may be some provisions for home education. And um, women aren't allowed out without a chest covering. And we just accept that as normal, right? Um, that uh, every society is going to tolerate some things and not tolerate others. And the 
you know, and basically the, the people setting up that rule system, running it, are going to think the things they tolerate are, you know, they sh- the state, the law system should be neutral about those things. And the things they don't tolerate, obviously, are intolerable. But those same things that they find intolerable, other people feel, well, absolutely, this, you know, this is not something for the state to intrude in. It's none of our business. Um, you know, you may not have, uh, if you go to some society with Sharia law, they may not have the elaborate uh, zoning regulations that we have. So they're neutral as to whether you put your storefront right at the edge of the road or 10 feet back, how much parking you need to provide. Um, uh, do you do you have to let everyone in? Do you have to bake a cake for a gay couple, right? Um, our system certainly isn't neutral about that, as we discovered. So other systems will be neutral about things that ours is not neutral about and vice versa. And I think what you'd find is that the people in who find the other system natural and acceptable would say, why should the state worry about, you know, how close the guy places his shop to the road or how many parking spaces he has? That's out, that's outrageous. Um, but of course, you know, women have to have a head covering in public. It would be outrageous otherwise. And, you know, if, if your reaction to that is, well, obviously, you know, that's discrimination. We make women have uh, chest coverings in public. And we just accept it as totally natural, whereas men don't have to, right? So um, every society will be neutral about some things and not neutral about others. And liberal societies are neutral about the things liberals feel should be a matter of indifference to the state and not neutral about the things they feel should not be a matter of indifference to the state, but so is every other society. Now, you might try to measure how many things are we indifferent to compared to how many things is some other society indifferent to, right? I don't know how you'd measure that. You know, we're more indifferent. The the case for liberalism being more tolerant than other forms of, of ways of organizing a government would have to come down to some measure of how much we don't care about versus how much you don't care about. And I don't know how you'd measure that. There's lots of things that we care about here that um, in other societies they don't and things they do care about that we don't. So the, the, the neutrality argument, I think, is a red herring. It's we should be neutral about things that it's good to be neutral about, and we should be not neutral about things that it's bad to be neutral about. I pointed out murder and robbery because th- those are pretty universal, right? Um, mm-hmm. There are very few societies that are neutral about whether you can murder somebody that I know of. None that I know of. Um, Colin Turnbull had a famous example of uh, African people who apparently had come to accept robbery, theft as normal. But, you know, this was such a... this book produced such a shockwave because it was so unusual. So pretty much theft is considered not okay across most societies. Um, But, you know, that's non-liberal and liberal societies. So there is a shared core of what we don't accept. It's um, where it's not shared that all the interest lies, right? 
No one is suggesting uh, we abandon liberalism and therefore legalize murder, right? Um, and no one's suggesting that uh, that I know of that whether you you choose vanilla or strawberry ice cream should be a matter of deep concern to the state, right? Mm-hmm. But there's lots of things that uh, our society, our legal system worries about that others don't, and vice versa. Well, yeah, a lot of good points. I, I can't believe, I don't think I've ever made that connection as obvious as it is. I'm not saying that to <laughs> belittle your your point on the, the coverings, but yeah, I've heard plenty of people mocking, and also, and it's not uh, just, quote, liberals, but like, like Christian American conservative types mocking uh, Muslim countries for, you know, their treatment of women and, oh, you, oh, she, you know, Cindy showed some, or they would use some stereotypically Muslim, you know, showed some ankle or something, ha ha. But yet, yeah, they would be scandalized if, you know, they were at the mall and a bunch of women in their twenties were walking around topless. They would, right. they would be outraged and think, you can't do that. Like, you know, covering their kids' eyes and probably not averting their own gaze. Um, and so, right. So that kind of just does, like you say, underscores the hypocrisy that it's, you know, clearly the principle is not, well, no, women can dress however they want. And who are you male chauvinists for imposing your views on them? Thinking that you're acting out of the, you know, protecting public morality or decency that no, that's exactly what the ostensible justification would be from Americans who want to regulate how women can dress in public. I mean, Ellen was just, my wife was just, uh, pointing out to me, we were at a beach resort in Switzerland on a lake, obviously not on the ocean. And, uh, in Switzerland at the beach resort, a lot of women are topless. And my, um, I guess he was probably seven year old at the time found this mighty interesting. Let me tell you, but, um, uh, so it probably Switzerland, ruined it though, that his parents were sitting right there. He had to like <laughs> pretend he didn't notice. Uh, yeah, well, he was young enough that, uh, he, he wasn't self-conscious about noticing yet. Okay. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, you could, um, go someplace in maybe the jungles of New Guinea and the men might walk around with just a little leaf over there, uh, John Thomas, and they would consider it outrageous that you would ask them to put on trousers, right? And it's like, what, what are you, what are you talking about? I've got a leaf. <laughs> you know, why, why do I need anything more than a leaf? Um, so, you know, there these, uh, what seems natural to us is not at all, um, intrusive and uh, illiberal to some other society might seem an outrageous intrusion, right? So that's the point I'm making there. Okay, so very good, and I'm you know I think that's an important point to make again, especially if nothing else, to just have people temper their own uh, dismissal of other cultures as being backward and intolerant. When, as you say, it's just a matter of well, no, it's just the stuff they care about. You happen not to, but there's, you know, situations where it'd go the other way. But in general though, so what's your takeaway? Does that mean we're fooling ourselves to, to strive for, you know, for, for people to say, oh yes, in the, in the Western tradition, you know, one of our virtues is our government is relatively tolerant and we, uh, you know, the government doesn't impose its way of thinking on people. And that, 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 is that completely just a myth or, is there a circumscribed arena in which, I mean, you obviously don't want the government telling people what church they have to go to. I think that's probably where a lot of this came from that, you know, that idea 
So how, what are your, what's, what's your overall stance on all this? Well, we should be, uh, as I mentioned before, and by the way, I don't, I'm not taking a position that there's no uh, possibility of cross-cultural evaluation, right? And it might be that, you know, for instance, the practice of sati, right, where a Hindu widow had to jump on the funeral pyre of her husband. Um, the British brought that pretty much to a halt. And I think that was a fine thing that they did so. Um, but, you, but you need to make an argument as to why that should not be. And notice the widows were, they, they weren't being forced onto the funeral pyre. There was a lot of social pressure, as I understand the practice. Mm-hmm. But they, no one was uh, coercing them, right? Um, and Okay, uh, so I, can I stop you there for a second? I was never clear on that. So you're saying it's not that, the natives for lack of a better term were grabbing widows and throwing them. And the British came in with their guns and said, you there, stop, put that woman down. It's that they went and grabbed the women and said, no, we're not letting you jump into the fire. Well, I think they, they banned the practice. As I, you know, this is not something I've studied in any depth. As I understand it, it was considered uh, the duty of a Hindu right. widow to do this. So it may be in some cases they were coerced, but I'm sure in many other cases, they said, well, this is, you know, as a good wife, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this was uh, an improvement, right? Uh, I mean, the British were hardly blameless in India, but in this case, I think that this, you know, I, I'm sure most Hindu women alive today would agree that, the, mm-hmm. you, know, I, you know, I'm kind of glad that's not the common practice anymore. Um uh, so I'm not saying that we can't um, compare cultures and say, hey, you know, the fact that they don't tolerate this is bad. But we can't, we, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that without, without examining it, that we're tolerant and they're not because they're tolerating things we aren't. And we're tolerating things they aren't, and we need to examine it and, and think about it. Um, <clears throat> and some of these things are mere customary, right? There are many societies where women's breasts aren't covered. And in those societies, I, you know, I don't think there's a big problem with that. I, I would not want to fly to one of those places and spend a year doing missionary work telling all the women to cover up, right? Because I, I don't see that as a particularly important thing. Right. Um, I don't see the fact that we ask women to do that as wrong either. But this is, uh, you know, there's customs about what parts of your body can be displayed in public and what parts can't. And for the most part, that kind of thing, uh, you know, leave the custom alone as long as it's not wildly oppressive to anybody. Because for one thing, you don't even know you disturb a custom like that. You're not sure what else you're going to disturb in the entire system of social customs and practices. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even so. if just to jump in on that one, there's something to be said too, I think for like, if you're flying out somewhere to go work among people and that's what they do there, who the heck are you to tell them to change their ways? Whereas if you know, you made friends with them and then some of them were going to come back with you to your local church in Phoenix to talk about, yeah, you know, these are some of my friends that I met and look at, this is what your, your, your tithing or whatever is supporting Clearly, 
if some of the women from that tribe come back with you when they're going to go to church on Sunday in Phoenix, they're going to have to cover up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you conform uh, to uh, other places, customs. Um, but let's say I uh, was a time traveler and I dropped into the American South. With that shirt, I think you are. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, sh- Bob. Ixnay, I know I'm travel say. Um, uh, so, um, I dropped into the American South in 1800. Um, I might want to do my best to suggest that, you know, maybe this whole slavery thing is a bad idea. Um, so I do think we, you know, we don't have to, we, we can differentiate between, okay, women's breasts are covered or uncovered. Uh, it's the custom, whatever the custom is, we can leave the custom alone. Um, children, uh, if you decide, you know, they have a club foot, you leave them out on the mountain to freeze to death. No, we might want to say, hey, that's not really good. You mm-hmm. you should stop that, right? So um, we, we should certainly be cautious about going into another culture and uh, assuming everything we do is right. Uh, so, you know, people people eat with forks or chopsticks or eat with their hands, right? I don't see, I don't think there's any moral issue there. You do what the practice of the area is, right? If I go to a place where people eat the, this dish with their hands, I'll eat it with my hands, right? Um, if they eat with chopsticks, I'll, I'll, I'll screw up a lot, but I'll try to eat with chopsticks. Um, I don't think there's any moral issue there. It's just a, a custom. Whereas, um, you know, the, the Greeks and Romans, if they had a baby that looked unfit, especially the Spartans were famous for this, right? Unfit children, you put them out to die. Um, I might do my best to persuade the Spartans to not do that. Because then I think we, we have... There is something... Uh, called natural law. I do think that exists, and um, and people can across cultures can recognize it. That's why we find there's laws against murder, except in maybe some special cases like leaving a baby who's unfit out to die. But in general, murder is wrong. By the way, the Spartans were another example of a society where uh, stealing. When a Spartan boy went out to do his, uh, essentially his walkabout, his solo training, he was supposed to live off of stealing, totally. Um, mm-hmm. And it was only getting caught that you got punished for. The problem wasn't that you stole. The problem was you got caught. And this, you know, was to teach you to, you're on a campaign and in enemy territory uh, and you get separated from your battalion. Well, you should be able to, break into people's kitchen and get what you need. So this was training in uh, surviving in a situation like that. And, and just to be clear, because some people might uh, be misunderstanding your point, that you're not just saying the, the tautology that, hey, as long as you commit crimes and get away with it, nothing bad happens. You mean they're taught, like, the, no, their value system, that you're being a good Spartan like don't feel you're not doing anything wrong if you steal from your neighbors in this period of training 
so long as you don't get caught. It's, right. It's not it was, that you, should, you know, that that's yeah. that we would actually applaud you if we found out 10 years later that you had done that. Yeah. In, in fact, if you survived, the assumption was that that was what you had been doing. Right. right. You know, the way you made it was you stole what food you needed. Um, and they, you know, it was explicitly taught that the problem was getting caught, not stealing. Mm-hmm. It, what's interesting too, and I, I meant to say this before and I forgot when you were bringing up the issues and the saying, oh, it's in some case, like societies are universally against murder and theft. I think the way the the differences uh, come out is that what you classify as murder and theft, right? In other words, murder it, almost by definition means you're committing a crime as opposed to killing or ending a life. Yeah, so well, like, let's... Let's so say feminists would say, like they say, abortion is not murder because it's yeah. just a clump of cells. And yeah, I, let's put it this way: um, almost all societies, any society I'm aware of, if your neighbor plays music too loud, whether on um, uh, stereo um, or, uh, by the way, once you knocked out the grad students, how did you get the music turned down? Bob? Uh, yes, Gene is referring to it an ill-advised tweet that I made where I said a joke that if you analyzed it too deeply, it, it collapsed under its own weight. Which, so, which right. I did. Yes. Um, so in any case, um, uh, you know, whether the person's playing their drums or uh, stereo and you go over and bury a hatchet in their head, uh, I don't think there's any societies ever that say, ah, you know, what the heck? It, you did what you did. Right. So there is, I think there's agreed upon obvious cases of murder. Now, there have been places where if you caught some guy sleeping with your wife and you killed him, they basically would say, yeah, well, that's that's pretty understandable. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't kill them, right? Um, so um, there, you know, there, there certainly, as you say, are uh, penumbras. Uh, there's, uh, there's, but there's a core of clear cases of, murder uh, that I, I think are pretty universally condemned. Then there's, um, so let's say uh, a foreign city is under siege and they refuse to surrender, right? Um, mm-hmm. Well, in that case, uh, you know, in the ancient world, generally you could kill the men and enslave the women and children. That was, you know, hey, they didn't surrender. No, that's their that's their fault. Whereas we would consider this a war crime today, right? Mm-hmm. So absolutely, there are cases where something is murder in one society and not in another. Uh, but I think there's a core of clear cases, and those are pretty universally condemned. Yeah, yeah, right. So, but anyway, I mean, I, I wasn't disagreeing with you. I was just clear or what I think was just refining the the claim that it's. It's there are disagreements about specific things, but everybody's against murder, and there, if there is a difference, it would probably would, the way you would handle that is to say, in some societies, this particular action would count as murder, whereas over here they wouldn't consider it murder. But everybody agrees murder is a, is a crime. I don't think there's any societies that have not had a, a concept of criminal murder. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from the action to talk about a new sponsor for the show, which is Vita. So this is an interesting new app that I've come across. They have an intriguing business model. What it is, it's a free spam blocking and privacy tool. So you download the Vita app and you select a second phone number that's yours, free and clear, no obligation on your part. 
Now, anybody who wants to contact you through either phone call or text via that second new phone number that you've established, if they're not on your contact list, then they have to pay whatever rate you determine in order to get through and for you to even see the message or receive the incoming phone call. And so what's happening here, big picture, I'm here commenting as an economist, is that there's lots of companies that are trying to market this way, but they would very much prefer to be able to target their marketing to people who are more likely to want their product or service. And so Vita is effectively allowing you to monetize that fact. And so what the companies are willing to pay in terms of targeting their marketing, you now are able to participate in that at whatever rate that you think your time is worth. So the way I'm looking at it right now with my regular phone, I'm getting all kinds of spam texts and calls all the time. And what Vita is allowing is a way for you to be paid for your attention. Again, whatever price you determine. So to see how it works, to give it a shot, go to vita.io slash Murphy. That's V-I-D-A dot I-O slash Murphy. Start getting paid from these outside people trying to reach you at whatever rate you choose. If you go ahead and download today, you'll get your first $1 just for getting the app. Again, that's vita.io slash Murphy. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Can you comment? Because what's interesting too, and, and this is what probably what made me think that you were onto something, you know, when you had originally put that uh, position to me, I think, like I said, back when I was in grad school. So folks, this would have been late nineties, early two thousands is what I'm talking about. Um, is just to see how far things have gone. And I, this came up, I had Keith Knight on my show recently here, Gene, where his book was, um, on, I think he called it domestic imperialism. And he was talking about modern American progressives and what made him leave that movement. He used to, consider himself progressive was realizing that they're at least on paper at least old school version they're very tolerant you know anything outside of our borders other people are doing that's none of our business who are we to judge you know the u.s but internally you know we can tell you how many gallons your toilet can have or to give a different example that oh yeah foreigners like you say if they want to you know especially like in muslim lands if they want to say women can't drive and this and that you know, who are we to judge? But here, if you call me by the name that's on my birth certificate, you just dead named me and that's violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, do you, do you, I don't know do you, if you have any thoughts on that. Like, is that kind of showing something's not right with this concept of tolerance that the way it's being, uh, and respect for minority position, something's kind of screwy with the way that's at least being implemented in the, in the Western world. Yeah. Well, um, it, it this kind of of leads me to um, the topic of the um, the shallowness of our the supposed multiculturalism of our progressives. So, what this comes down to is, um, you know, it's it's cool to wear some African cloth, perhaps, right? Even if you're wearing it totally incorrectly, there was some incident where a bunch of Democratic Congress people wore a particular cloth and I, you know, it was like cloth that you would wear at a wedding or something or a funeral and they just had it on for show, right? So mm-hmm. they were wearing it, but in, in a completely inappropriate situation without paying any attention to its actual meaning. And it's like nice to go out for Jamaican food and Tunisian food. But if any of these other cultures 
uh, vary from progressive ideas on social issues, well, then, you know, you completely condemn them. So if, uh, you know, Malaysia, uh, there was something in a Disney movie where uh, something two guys kissed or something like that. Malaysia wanted that edited out. And this is outrageous. So what happened to respecting their culture and their ways in this case? It, what it really means is it's okay to take on uh, superficial aspects of these other cultures, but fundamentally we want them to be Western progressives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and when it comes to any deep, serious issue, we are extremely, we, you know, the uh, m m most of our Western uh, progressive leadership is extremely upset whenever they're not, they don't act as Western progressives. Um, so th this, I think, is a, a telling example. Um, and, you know, we actually had the case made that it was good to bomb Afghanistan because the Taliban weren't nice to women. So, um, you know, there might be things to criticize, but it certainly wasn't uh, just accepting other cultures' ways of life. And in fact, we were willing to kill a bunch of people because they made women wear veils or something like that, right? Right, right. So, okay. So, yeah, we. I think we've hit on a, a, a good sampling of, of examples just to get across this, this uh, I don't know if contradiction is the right word, but these, these problems with trying to apply this logic. So, I guess big picture then, what, 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 what's the takeaway in terms of like the ideal state if you well, even use language like that in your in your framework yeah. like is, is toleration or tolerance or uh, neutrality something they should even strive for or do you just admit up front that no that's not even i mean in other words there's a, there's clearly a bunch of different considerations that get balanced against each other it's not just a um you know one goal yeah, there, there, are framework, things, right? there are things we shouldn't be neutral about right Mm -hmm. um, there, so let's take an example of something that we were neutral about and, um, you know, uh, the legal regime, uh, around this might be very problematic, but, you know, men making extremely crude comments to women in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, we were once pretty tolerant of that. Um, I've heard stories of wall street in the eighties and, uh, it could be absolutely brutal. Now, you know, the, Making it an actual legal matter has introduced problem of it, problems of its own. But I think it's good that in general we don't tolerate that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It might be better if it was we didn't socially tolerate it and we kept the legal system out of it. I don't know. Uh, but there's something we used to tolerate and we don't tolerate, and it's good we don't tolerate it, right? So there are things that we should tolerate. Um, I shouldn't... Uh, yeah, Bob, your beard's a little longer than mine. Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm out of the interview, right? That, that mm -hmm. There's no reason to uh, get worked up about things like that. There's things that um, we shouldn't tolerate. Um, you know, uh, Joe goes around exposing himself to young girls. Oh, well, that's just Joe's way of life. Who are we to criticize his lifestyle? No, we shouldn't tolerate that, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, it's the, it's the framing of, of I'm tolerant and you're intolerant, really, that I'm objecting to. 
In, in fact, if we look at it, you tolerate some things and don't tolerate others, and I do the same. And the issue is, uh, is this something that ought to be tolerated or isn't it? And it, it's somewhat like uh, when people say, oh, that's discrimination, right? Well, mm -hmm. so is hiring a good person for the job instead of a, a person who's terrible at it, right? It's discrimination when I go out to hear good musicians play and don't pay money to hear bad musicians. Mm -hmm. What we want is discrimination is fine in many cases. We don't want arbitrary discrimination. We don't want discrimination based on how long your beard is, right? Um, Bob can't get a job because his beard is longer than mine. That's arbitrary discrimination. So simply pointing out that some, that X is intolerant or X is discrimination, um, it short circuits thought, right? Because what we actually want to see is what, well, what are good bases for discriminating and what are bad bases, right? What are good bases, what should be tolerated and what shouldn't be? Mm -hmm. Just saying, you know, Oh, intolerance. Well, some things shouldn't be tolerated. Some should. And I bet, you know, the people who accuse others of intolerance, uh, you could find in any case lots of things they don't tolerate. And maybe, you know, some of them are good and some of them maybe they should tolerate. But uh, rather than just toss out this word as if it was an argument ender, let's have the actual discussion. We should, right. what should be tolerated? Should that be tolerated? Yeah. Uh, another example I think of how attitudes have changed is like with drunk driving that I think, uh, you know, it, it used to be the case of somebody, you know, the next day at work was like, oh man, I was at the bar last night. I could barely, you know, keep my eyes open on the road on the way home. Huh? Like that would just be where I think now if someone talked like that, people at the very least would be thinking that's not cool. And someone would probably say something to the guy, you know, right. that, uh, and this, that's something that's morphed over time. Uh, as far as your, the discrimination, that that's a good one. Yeah. I had a whole thing when I wrote the politically incorrect guide to capitalism, where I went through that and, you know, was just pointing to, you know, and I was coming up with perhaps contrived examples, but just try to illustrate the point that it, what's funny is a lot of this stuff I said then that was obvious in terms of motivating the discussion now would not be so obvious. So for example, I, I said in general, people think, oh yeah, you can't hire on the basis of sex. And I said, but wait a minute, you know, if the movie is casting a role for his a historical woman, surely, you know, the director and everybody, they can, you know, Dustin Hoffman comes to read for the part and they can say, well, yeah, good job. But no, this, you know, it's Joan of Arc. You can't. And then he could say, what? I played, you know, in Tootsie, I played a woman. What are you talking about? You know, and so it was kind of funny back then, but now actually people would get, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be so obvious. Like I could just go to that sort of thing just to illustrate. Now, clearly we don't mean this. And actually a lot of people do mean that now. So it is yeah. funny how that, even my attempt at reductio ad absurdum back then, in, and it wasn't that long ago, it was like in 2005 or something or 2006 that, yeah. that, uh, you know, no, no longer would, would, would do the job that I was trying to have it do. And, um, and while there might be tolerance for having a trans woman play a woman, Joan of Arc, say, uh, that now there's uh, almost no tolerance for having someone who is not Maori play a Maori person yeah. in a movie, right? So right. that's not tolerated at all. Um, so it's not a matter of more tolerance, less tolerance. So tolerance shifts. There's 
things that are not tolerated, things that are, and we should discuss, should we tolerate this or, or shouldn't we? Okay. So I've tried a couple of times to get you, I, now I figure out a way I'm going to trick you into answering my question <laughs> definitively. So here's what I'm trying to really isolate is back in the year 1990, if people, you know, supporters of classical liberalism and that framework, if they talked about the toleration of the West and were anti-discrimination and da, 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 people would have known what you meant by that and it would have been fine. And then someone criticizing it though, you know, if they had said, no, I'm telling you this equilibrium that we have right now, no, this there's, it's actually arbitrary. And what you think is just common sense. Oh, clearly, um, for example, Gene, just, um, this popped into my head. I remember when I was a kid, my mom actually told me how I was surprised the equal rights amendment hadn't passed. And so she told me, she said, well, you know, some people on the right were making arguments like saying, oh, if that goes through, then that means men and women's bathroom, you know, that it'll all just be one bathroom. And she was telling me that like to show like that was some of the scare tactics that were used. And we were both like, oh, come on, that's insane. And yet, you know, that, that that's not so insane now that, that mentality. So I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think it was inevitable that because, yeah, as you're saying, like logically speaking, it's not that there's a set of, oh, no, these really are the important things that we should tolerate, and these are the ones that no decent society would tolerate, that because that's somewhat arbitrary, that, yeah, there was no hope that there was going to be a stable foundation, and you're kidding yourself. It was it was going to, over time, result in things that people from 30 years ago would have thought, this is crazy. I can't believe this is my country. Yeah, I do think um, that... You know, if we if we look at over the course of this, um, so at the time of the American founding, right, um, uh, th there would have been much less tolerance of uh, government regulations on businesses, right? People would have mm -hmm. found a, the degree of regulation we have today to be insane, right? And the, f mm -hmm. the fact that it takes uh, a professional to do our taxes, right? Uh, but but of course, at the same time, they were tolerating African slavery. Uh, they were tolerating it being very difficult for women to own property uh, in their own name. Um, uh, they were they were completely tolerant of uh, blasphemy laws and so forth at the state level. Um, what free speech meant to them was not what free speech means to us. Um, and uh, over time, these things have shifted. There's been different things that, you know, liberals clearly should tolerate and other things they should. A lot of liberals uh, totally backed imperialism. Um, this was a common liberal position that, uh, you know, those poor Indians and Africans, uh, they need to be brought up to European standards. And if it takes a couple hundred years of us ruling them and oppressing them, well, you know, that, that'll be good for them in the long run. Um, right. So uh, a lot of the progressives were eugenics. Yeah, yeah. Um, or into eugenics. Yeah. So uh, there, there's things that a society tolerates and things that it doesn't. And um, I, I don't see that there is some, um, you know, sweet spot you can just uh, uh, think up a priori and mm -hmm. go to. Um, that it, it's, you know, the, the hard work is discussing what should be tolerated and what shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, why don't we move on to uh, something that seems to have nothing to do with that, but maybe it does. Uh, you once on your blog, and I've, I've cited this several times, and I've recently spent a lot of time uh, in the episode here on this show when I was going over uh, the introduction of the Gospel of John and you know Jesus is the Word and going through all that. And I referenced your post where you said that Euler's, I think it was the identity version yeah. that you used, where you know E raised to the power of I times pi, uh, what is it, plus one equals zero. Uh, and you said a short proof of the existence of God, something like that. And at the time, you know, I thought it was interesting when you wrote it, and then over time I just have really thought that was pretty profound. So do you want to... First of all, you know, was that your idea or did you see someone else say that? And I don't mean the proof. I know yeah. <laughs> Euler yeah. probably, you know, has first dibs on that one. But yeah. anyway, do you want I to did, respond? I arrive at the sieve of Eratosthenes on my own only to discover I had been beaten by a couple thousand years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, as far as I know, it's certainly not my idea that the – beauty and orderliness of mathematics is evidence of a divine mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, Plato would have said, oh, yes, of course, right? Um, uh, and, you know, so would, have, so would many, like all the greats of the scientific revolution would have said, Galileo would have been totally behind that, right? He said, you know, the, uh, we're... I'm paraphrasing, but we're, when we do science, we're understanding the language of God, and that's mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, as I mentioned before we started, uh, in our pre-recording time, uh, I, I was being hyperbolic, saying it's a proof. I certainly don't think it's a proof, but I do think it's good evidence. Um, why? So, if uh, the the so, you know, where where does the universe come from in a materialist um, point of view? It's just around. It's just there's just stuff, you know, who, who knows why we might get some. You know, Hawking tried to get how the um, quantum vacuum could pop things into existence out of nothing. But the quantum vacuum itself is an orderly thing that has laws and so forth. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, who knows? It was always around. But given we have just this stuff that happened to be always around, why would it have this orderliness? Why would it exhibit these beautiful patterns? And that's where I think that this is evidence that um, uh, you, you interestingly quoted John, and the, the, it says the word was with God, but the Greek word is logos, right? Mm -hmm. Which can also mean the pattern, the logic, right? Mm -hmm. The pattern is with God. Um, and uh, so when we do mathematics, I think we're looking at that pattern, right? We're actually viewing the, the patterns that um, make up the divine mind. We're, and we're, this is Aristotle, right, said this. We're, we're, when we're doing abstract thinking, we're participating in the divine mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think of what you just said there, the, the key phrase or takeaway was when you said that if we, even within pure mathematics, we see these beautiful patterns and the word beautiful there, like that's something, because I don't know if you were ever afflicted with this gene, but you may remember there was a point, I think when you knew me even, where I, I called myself a materialist. 
you know, I, I was an atheistic materialist and I'm trying to remember what my mindset was at the time. And I, uh, I you were just drooling a lot, probably, <laughs> and, you know, but, Go ahead. Um, but it, I think what I would have thought is, um, well, no, I mean, math, it's just like, it's like s- simple building blocks, you know, it's like concepts and it's just like thinking methodically or something like, yeah, one plus one equals two and two plus two is four because that's almost like definition. And I would have, whereas something like you're saying with Euler's identity, where there's a bunch of different things. And I remember it, when you posted that at the time, people challenged you and you went in and explained either you did or someone who was taking your side in the comments was saying, no, no, no. Like E and pi and I are all totally different areas of math. There's no a priori prima facie reason you would expect them to have anything to do with each other. And the fact that they all come together and then plus one equals zero, like that's amazing. And, and then, you know, and you've given quotes from even agnostics or atheists who are just acknowledging how gorgeous that equation is um, and how profound it is. And so that, again, it's, it's not that, oh yeah, that's just, if you think about, the concept of number that just jumps out at you. Like, no, there's no reason that that should be true. Well, it's funny that uh, a lot of the dismissive comments came from people who probably, you know, had a couple college math courses. Whereas when you look at great mathematicians reactions to this, they say, mm-hmm. well, this is amazing. This is, you know, the, the often it's designated as the most amazing equation in math. So the great mathematicians are apparently missing something that these, uh, people who pass calculus to understand very well. Yeah. And I did, I don't know if you had time to see it. I emailed it to you like an hour before go time here. Did you see the thing about the blocks bouncing off each other? Yeah. I'm a fan of three blue, one Brown. And okay. uh, I do, I had seen that a couple of years ago and I clicked on it when you sent it to me and began to watch it. And yeah, pie, pie emerges in amazing places. Um, just for hang on one second, just for the folks. So I'll put a link, of course, everybody to all the stuff we're talking about. But the thing is that if you do a simulation in the computer where there's a you know two blocks and there's like a an immovable wall that you know just and everything's elastic, like there's no energy loss to friction and stuff like that, and just one big block's moving, hits the little block, and and then the little block starts going, bounces off the wall, and comes back. And if you keep track of how many collisions there are and then keep increasing the size of the bigger block by a factor of 10. And so you say, okay, you do it. If they're the same, there's three collisions. And then if it's, if you, if it's 10 times the mass of the smaller one, there's, there's, uh, how does it go? Yeah, there's 31. And then there's, yeah. And then three third and 314. If you do it a hundred to one, is that how it goes? And it just keeps, if you keep scaling it up by a factor of 10, it exactly starts spelling out, the digits of pi, which why the heck would that be the case? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's Newtonian mechanics that it's modeling. What the heck? So anyway. Yeah. I, I recall uh, learning linear algebra and then just being stunned at the things that uh, uh, linear algebra applies to. I mean, that, that it applies to network graphs and uh, you know, you can do things like uh uh, off the top of my head, uh, I forget the application. But uh, today I was looking at uh, the fact, you know, a neural network that's translating English to Spanish is basically a bunch of linear algebra. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, the, the you know, something that was uh, evolved um, 
in um, a context of um, what solving algebraic equations uh, just has turned out to have applications in crazy areas where you'd never expect it to show up. Well, in one such connection is that I literally wanted to finally go to AI thinking our discussion of how does Euler's identity tie into AI and thinking it doesn't. And now you just walked right into it, talking about neural nets and linear algebra and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and for folks at home, I mean, Gene is a professional computer programmer and I don't mean like, I, the, you you had a job on Wall Street, right? At one point, like helping, like give the. Why don't you brag just a little bit about your background so people understand why they should care yeah, what you have I've, to say about AI? I've spent uh, thirty years or maybe more as a software engineer. I've taught computer science at NYU the last seven years, something six years, and taught at other places before. Um, so I'm starting to feel like I have some idea what I'm talking about in this area. Um, so uh, do, you, do you want uh, my brief take on the whole AI thing? Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. And, and again, so, and I, folks, I, have, I don't even know what he's going to say. For all I know, he's going to say it's <laughs> a stupid fad and people who devote episodes of their podcast to it are idiots, and that's okay. It's, um, uh, it's really interesting technology, right? I mean, there, there's uh, uh, the neural network that uh, creates a large language model and then processes text through it is a fantastic technical accomplishment. Um, I do think, I don't know, I, I saw a definition that uh, uh, a doctorate, um, I'm looking, I'm going back to my phone to find the exact quote. Um, she's a doctorate who's professional AI researchers. Uh, she says, AI is the development of computer systems that are able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence. This is not a, I mean, this is not a, any kind of rigorous definition. There is, there's nothing in computer science that differentiates AI from not AI. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, if you wanted to add two large numbers, it took human intelligence, right? Um, yeah, right. So, and so, but no, no one says when they look at their Texas instrument pocket calculator, oh, this is AI, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it just, it just keeps shifting to AI is basically the latest stuff that will amaze people. And there's no real reason to think if you don't, if you don't think that a calculator calculating, uh, okay, let's go back more basic. Your thermostat knows when to turn the heat on and when to, turn it off, right? When to kick the furnace on, when to kick it off. Um, is your thermostat an AI device? Well, you know, there's a philosophy called panpsychism that says everything is uh, uh, has a consciousness, the entire universe. And under that view, maybe it is, but this is not, the, the AI people aren't going to uh, uh, go with that. So, but if we say that, we don't want to say our thermostat knows when to turn the heat on. Why did it's we like say that, that this? Did you ever hear the joke, Gene, about, I, I, I won't say the first two. There's three guys going around talking about what the greatest invention ever was. And the first two say plausible candidates. And the last guy says the thermos. And they say, why? He said, because if I put something in cold, it stays cold. I put something in hot, it stays hot. How do it know? Go ahead. <laughs> right. Um, uh, you know, what we have is a bunch of circuitry. And you can you can study it and understand that, okay, what we've, 
what we've done with what's called machine learning, right? Uh, I don't, calling it learning is a, is a, it's either a, a publicity stunt or a piece of propaganda. What we're doing, if you want to, if you really want to understand what's going on, is we're searching a program space. Um, and this is going to be, so there's going to be a billion settings of, of, of vectors, right? That are going to determine, given this input, what are we going to output? And we could set all that by hand, right? We could set it all by hand in a bunch of, uh, um, you know, of pipes and valves with water. If we wanted, it would be extremely slow, right? But we could do it. Um, so instead of trying to find those billion parameters, which, you know, the combination of all of them is just immense beyond belief, what we do is we set a computer going, looking for the right combination of the billion parameters so that when you put in some English text, you probably get out some good French text. Mm-hmm. And um, we search the, the space, the parameter space, to see what settings seem to work. And when it works good enough, however we determine is good enough, we put in English, and most of the time the French looks okay. We say, okay, I guess those are good parameters. So, I mean, did, did the machine learn something? We just set a bunch of numbers inside the circuitry. Why, why, why say, um, oh, there I was drumming for sure on the table. Uh, why say that it, why call it learning um, rather than, you know, if I set the thermostat to 65, the house learns that I want it cold. So I understand that point, And I think the defender of, so, so number one, you're, you're absolutely right that the definition of artificial intelligence that you just gave is, is a goofy one. Not that it was yours, the one that you read that you yeah. know, it's not yours. And that's and an, that's an AI that, prof- yeah. a doctorate who yeah. does this full time. Um, but having said that, I suppose the defender of the claim that, the, no, there's something important going on here could say to you, um, Okay, Gene, but by the same token, yeah, I, what does it mean to say humans learn something? I mean, you, you just feed the kids stuff, they go to school, and they get some inputs, and then, you know, something's going on internally with their neurons and blah, blah, blah. And now that we say that they're bilingual, because if you say English to them, they can, tra- they can translate it to French. Yes, and that, and so, that is exactly what typically some a defender of calling this AI and saying it's mm-hmm. learning is going to say. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, I don't say that I'm not, my claim is not that there's nothing important here. This is some fantastic technical work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these people are creating uh, really advanced programs that are doing really interesting things and clearly are, are going to have importance. So I'm not diminishing the work, just the terminology. Uh, I, I feel it would be more comprehensible if people described it more accurately. Uh, here's what we're really doing. All right. So why do we, why do we consider? And I'd say, you know, maybe the computer, maybe there's some entity in the computer that's conscious and has learned something, right? I just say there's no evidence for that. Um, so there's a couple of things here. First of all, uh, there's the Turing test thing that, well, if if you can't tell the text coming out from what a person would say, then you have to grant it it's intelligent. Uh, no, no. Um, 
if I can't tell a holographic dog from a real dog, I don't have to grant that the holographic dog is real. You know, if someone projects a holographic dog onto my lawn and I can't tell whether it's a holographic dog or real dog, no, I don't have to grant that the holographic dog is real. Therefore, no, it's not a dog. It doesn't, it doesn't poop. It doesn't eat, you know, Purina dog chow. It doesn't have puppies. It's a hologram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that kind of evidence um, is not uh, conclusive and we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't consider it conclusive in other areas. In fact, the very people who insist on that also often take the opposite position in regards to animals. They say, just because your dog looks like it loves you, don't think that it loves you. It actually is just responding to hormones and chemicals. Right, right. Um, but the, um, the, the big thing uh, that I think is crucial here is that um, when we learn something, you know, I learn, uh, I, I've learned Bob is a great interviewer, right? Well, I actually, there's something that I'm aware of thinking when I think that, right? And if, if this were all merely deterministic circuitry, which, you know, we know the computer is, right? We know the computer is absolutely deterministic, even when we've set up a computer system so complex, we can't really follow where the billiard balls bounce to, right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, where the tubes led. Um, it's still, we know it's deterministic. Um, if that was what we were, why the heck do we have this silly consciousness following us around? What is it for? If, if I'm just a deterministic system and the next thing that comes out of my mouth is just a result of all the atoms in my body bouncing around, why do I actually have an awareness of it? It, it seems mm. completely unnecessary. Why, you know, it, why would evolution saddle us with this nonsense of, of, thinking things if we were just deterministic machines. Um, there's, other, there's other ways to show that thinking can't be just a material process. Uh, uh, Saul Kripke has a uh, good argument for this. Um, uh, you know, basically any physical system will underdetermine any thought, right? That any, any physical system could be uh, mapped to all sorts of different kinds of thoughts. Uh, well, can I, I, I so I, I like where you're going. And again, I stuff that the position you're taking now, I know I would have rejected back when I was an atheistic materialist, mm. partly because what choice would I have had? <laughs> yeah. um, well, whereas yeah, now I get you're saying like, now I'm open to, you know, I, and I believe people have souls and there's a sense in which, you know, God created you and you're a unique individual and you have a body. Um, but uh, are you committed, though, to like, aren't you relying on that, like a, a, a sort of dualism? Because wouldn't a materialist just say, yeah, I agree with you, Gene. It sounds like what your point is, is that I have this internal experience. And so I assume when I see other humans acting in ways comparable to how my, what my bodily motions look like that I am open to the hypothesis that they must have some internal ego as well, even though I can't directly know that. 
But then yeah. by the same token, since we don't really understand where that comes from, how do we know that chat GPT-9, if in all other respects, sure the heck sounds like it's a lot, or like data from Star Trek, the next generation. Like if there were really a, an Android walking around acting like him for seven seasons of the show, you want to still say at the end that no, come on, because like, isn't that just a prejudice you have that no, if he's built out of these things, then he can't, he, he can't be thinking and learning and, and feeling because I just know he can't be the stuff he's made out of. Yeah, that's uh, so my point is not to contend that uh, maybe, maybe some uh, consciousness has come to inhabit chat GPT. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis actually in the last of the, uh, uh, the space sci-fi trilogy um, has something like a computer that's actually inhabited by a demon. Is that the hideous strength? Yeah, yeah, that hideous okay. strength, right. So mm-hmm. he actually contemplated this, that maybe... Don't spoil it. I haven't read this, so don't oh, tell me the ending. Oh, whoopsie. <laughs> um, too late. <laughs> too, too late, spoiled. Um, so maybe there is, but I'm just saying that uh, the fact that this deterministic system outputs just what it was determined to output is no reason to posit that, oh, therefore it's thinking, right? Just like we don't posit that the thermostat decides that, oh, uh, I better turn the temperature up. They want the temperature up um, simply because it, it does what it, what it deterministically is built to do, right? Um, why, why add in the notion that, oh, and therefore it's thinking, right? Well, no, we built, we built this really sophisticated circuit um, that when we put, uh, French into it, it comes out and gives us a semi-decent English version of the French. Okay, that's great. That's a that's a huge technical accomplishment. Uh, the the details of what the people who did this figured out along the way uh, are really fascinating. You know, they did uh, really great work. And okay, but why why should I why should I believe that this deterministic circuitry is thinking? Uh, any more than I believe my thermostat is thinking when it it knows to turn the temperature up, um, or my Texas Instrument calculator is thinking when it gets the right answer for the uh, sine of ninety degrees. Um, mm-hmm. Except that I've already a- assumed materialism, and I've already assumed that we're such a, a machine, and that I've already assumed that. The actual internal experience is, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's an OTOS layer on the deterministic machine. Right. Um, uh, you know, so my other point there was why, why did evolution uh, work things out so that we had this? What, what, what's the point if, if you and I are deterministic machines and the next thing you're going to say in response to what I say is simply you know, what your atoms force out of your mouth or whatever, however the model is supposed to work. Why, why is there an awareness accompanying it? What's the point, right? What's, what, what is the awareness doing yeah. since it's all deterministic? Okay. So, and we, we're getting close on time here. So let me just leave you with this final one and get your response. So I'm glad, yeah, you, you came right. It's almost like it was predetermined. You, you, you came right into exactly what I was going to ask you is this final question is to say that, you know, suppose the Newtonian model of the, of the material world were correct for the moment. In other words, putting aside 
quantum uncertainty if in principle you had an accurate enough map of all the atoms in my body and their exact positions and momentum and blah, blah, blah. Strictly speaking, oh yeah, what happens is when you ask me when you ask me a question, it's just vibr- you know the, your vocal cords are vibrating, and it's and if you zoomed in with a microscope, you wouldn't see. Oh, that's where genes will came into play. It would just look like molecules obeying the laws of physics, and the air, you know the air molecules would vibrate, and it would go in my little ear uh, bones in my ear would vibrate, and pulses would get sent. And if you looked at any component of what was going on, it would look completely deterministic. And it would not be obvious how is it that Gene Callahan asked Bob Murphy a question. He thought about it and then chose to respond thusly. That, no, that's just all gobbledygook superstition. We can, if we get down to the brass tacks, we can explain everything deterministically. And so if that's how humans work, how can you deny that to the computer? That's someone might say something like that. Yeah. Interestingly, Leibniz did this exact thought experiment to show that thought isn't material. Because he said, imagine you could blow up a brain and zoom in, and nowhere in there would you find the idea uh, Bob is asking a question. You would mm-hmm. just see a bunch of you know, neural matter you know, having electrical impulses and chemical, exchanging chemicals and so forth. Um, uh, so there, there was another point I wanted to make. Uh, um, but... Uh, so the the fact that you you that you can uh, abstract out of our experience this model, right? So where 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 did this come from? This is a model we have abstracted from our actual living experience. Um, if if we mistake that model for for the full reality of experience and. So first of all, we've we've gone looking for our keys under the streetlight, right? Mm-hmm. So we've just gone searching for whatever we can find using the the instruments of physics, and then we've held held up as a result. Oh, there's no keys under the streetlight, therefore keys don't exist. Um, but then uh, the 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 physical determinists stating that themselves would have to admit that that's not something they actually believe. That's just what their atoms made them say. What would what right. would belief have to do with this? You know, right. uh, and suppose you could, well, maybe they don't accept it, but if they don't accept it, that just really means their atoms are in such a state that they say, I don't accept that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they, and what you find is people don't apply this to themselves, the people who are saying this. They really mean the rest of you are machines. And, uh, and this is C.S. Lewis said this too, that, what they really want is to convince the rest of you, your machines, and that I'm the machine operator. And so right. I can set you a bunch of machines, right? My friend Ryan Holston just did a review of some fellow who was saying, look, we're all determined. You can't blame criminals for their actions. Punishing them is stupid. So why don't all I'm trying to convince you to stop doing this? So I say, what convince my, my punishing actions are determined too. It's just my yeah. molecules making me punish the criminal. How can you blame? He's, he's blaming the people who punish criminals because the criminals can't be blamed. But 
the people who punish them can't be blamed either on this model. Yeah, I've always thought that was an unbelievable contradiction. Like, how could they not see that and at least try to address it? And yet, I've seen plenty of people yeah. who state that and don't don't even it doesn't even occur to them. Well, Bob, their Adams made him say it. Yeah, in fact, it's contradictory. <laughs> you know, it's not they're not to blame for the fact they contradicted themselves. Yeah. Okay. Well, very deep stuff. Uh, I think this is a good point for us to wrap up. My guest this week, folks, has been Gene Callahan, a man of many hats and talents and dubious and fashion choices. And beautiful shirts. Yeah. <laughs> okay, joking as I thanks, Gene, uh, for your time, and uh, we'll have to have you back on at some point in the future when GPT-9 can show you just how wrong you've been. All right. Thanks, Bob. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.